Alright, so Father, we just we ask you to come and help us, Lord. We just we just confess our weakness before you and Father our depravity and the depraved mind. Father, we come before you and ask you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Jesus today that you would make known, God, the things that were declared through your mouth to the holy prophets, that you would speak them forth today with you would anoint John to just speak it with uh, with boldness as he should to proclaim the mystery of Christ crucified and Father the, the coming age God the day of the Lord these things God that, that are so precious in your heart God I pray that there would just be boldness in the proclamation today that you would just anoint John's weak human words God to uh, to, to just uh, speak forth the unfathomable riches of Christ today by the Holy Spirit so I ask you to just come anoint our hearts anoint John in Jesus name so I just wanted to start in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, and uh, I mean 1 Corinthians 12, sorry, just so none of you are, are put off by, uh, by my style, and I, I understand the, the weakness of things. So uh, 1 Corinthians 12, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Verse 28, and in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, workers of miracles, those who have gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking different kinds of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret but eagerly desire the greater gifts. So, so just to say on the front end, um, I'm. Uh, <clears throat> as you get older, you, you begin to understand your own limitations, and and I've come to terms with uh, I, I'm a teacher. It's it's what I am. It's how I function, and <clears throat> and and I let other people do their thing. I, I travel with a guy who's has a really intense gift for faith and miracles. And he, and he really could, you could, I, I tell people, he could sell you a used car and then pray for you to be healed as confirmation that you bought the right car. And you would be healed. And, and I, don't, I don't know how that works. It just works that way. And, it's, uh, <clears throat> and so, so anyway, my, my gift is not faith for healing and things. Though I, I have a, a consistent... Uh, life and miracles, most of the activity of the Holy Spirit in my life is in dreams and and some in visions. And so um, <clears throat> I, I've had seasons, you know, where usually when I travel and minister and overseas and pray for people and everybody I pray for gets healed. And then I come to the States and I pray for people and everybody doesn't get healed. And I'm like, I don't... It, nothing changed in me, you know, like I had the same, saying the exact same thing with the same faith and that kind of deal. So I don't know how that works, um, just in my own personal life and in our church, we, we've been in a season for about six months where the Lord's been exhorting us and, and, uh, and it doesn't matter who I pray for, but when we gather as a church and, and pray, then people get healed consistently. And so that's, I'm kind of in that season, so I have faith for that right now. But um, I just wanted to give a, a framework tonight.
for the activity of the Holy Spirit and uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the main design for it, how the apostles viewed the purpose of it and why the gift is given. It has various uh, purposes and reasons, but the, the, the main driving one. So I'm just going to give a little bit of an overview about uh, the, the nature of the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures and redemptive history. Then we're going to kind of narrow in on specific uh, purposes for the gift of the Holy Spirit and then uh, uh, um, <clears throat> pray for the Holy Spirit to do what He does. So, uh, if you have uh, notes, pull those out. And uh, I thought I would do notes just because uh, a lot of times going passage to passage, uh, different people have different translations, and it's hard to track along. And, and so, uh, <clears throat> this way we all kind of have them together. So, the Holy Spirit in redemptive history to... To those within the Scriptures, the activity of the Holy Spirit was not a strange thing. It was a, a very normal thing. To us, post-Enlightenment West, uh, activity of the Holy Spirit and miracles and these kinds of things are, are all very strange to us. So I want to just give kind of a, a, a biblical framework for how they understood the Holy Spirit. Genesis 1, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So you have a dynamic of the Holy Spirit at creation, in the creation of the heavens and the earth, the hovering the hovering of the Spirit of God and God speaking, and the Holy Spirit being the means by which Things are created, and of course the word in Hebrew for breath and spirit are the same thing. So you have the, the breath and the word of God coming out by His Spirit in the creation of things. Obviously, these are things we don't understand, but it's declared to us that that's how they are. And so for example, in Psalm 33, by the, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. So you have, again, a reference to the creation, to Genesis 1, the creation of the heavens and all their host. And you have it um, by the word of the Lord and by the breath or by the spirit that proceeds from His mouth. So, the Holy Spirit is the agent by which, uh, the Holy Spirit's the agent by which creation happens. And then the Holy Spirit is also the agent by which the new creation happens, by which there is a new heavens and new earth. And so, this assuming a broad theological framework for the restoration of all things. That God created everything good in the beginning, in the heavens and the earth, and He'll make Everything righteous has been perverted by man and sin. He'll make it righteous, a home of righteousness, 2 Peter 3 in the end. And this will be by means of the Holy Spirit. And so, as Jesus said in context to the rich young ruler and inheriting eternal life, and him going away, you know, disappointed, and the confusion of the disciples, we've left everything for you. And 
he says, you who have left houses and homes in this age, you will sit with me at the renewal or the regeneration of all things on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the regeneration or the renewal or the new earth is a reference to the palingenesia, the, the again genesis. When God does genesis again at the end of the age and restores everything. And so this is kind of, it's, uh, I use the analogy of, of, uh, a bunch of mechanics sitting around, right? And, uh, and, and some kid comes in raised in the country club who's never even looked under the hood of a car and he walks into a mechanic shop and, uh, and he's trying to listen in and understand, you know, what's going on here, right? He doesn't, he's never been in a mechanic shop. He's just, and, and the, the problem with the scriptures is that it's understood from Genesis pressing forward what's going on. The nature of human beings and God and redemptive history. There's a lot of things that are understood based upon Genesis, right? And so Genesis was the framework for life that they worked out of. It, it wasn't a set of myths or theories or these kinds of things. It, it was how life was to them. So most naturally, it was created good, man wrecked it, and God's going to fix it. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And there's going to be bodies without death. And it's going to be a home of righteousness and these kinds of things. And so rarely in the scriptures do you get just a detailed laying out like the guys in an automotive shop. Rarely are you going to get them, well, Bob, hey, <clears throat> You know, we're working on a four-wheeled internal combustion automotive here. Will you hand me that screwdriver? You know, like, the, you're not going to have that very often in the conversation because it's assumed and understood. So you have particular times in, in various places where it kind of gets laid out like in Acts 3 or in 1 Corinthians 15 where it's kind of made clear what the broad uh, redemptive history is. So likewise in Romans 8, you, 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 you get a referencing to what is obvious to everyone, and that being a theology of a restored creation or a new creation. This would be extremely elementary to any first century Jew, but for various reasons, you know, throughout history, we have the strange, you know, ideas of uh, the kind of Platonic floating on a cloud forever with a harp and going uh, to heaven, etc. So, so we have to rehearse these things, and, and I know probably most of you are fairly familiar with these things, So, but I just want <clears throat> to give a, a basic framework. So Romans 8 is one of those places, and <clears throat> Paul is talking about the means by which we inherit eternal life. He says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who lives in you. So you get a direct reference that God raised Jesus and gave Him a new body by means of the Holy Spirit. And He'll give life to your mortal body by means of the Holy Spirit. Just like in the begin beginning, He took a piece of dirt, He formed it, and He breathed His Spirit into it and became a living being. So likewise at the end in the resurrection of the dead, this will be the, the means by which the resurrection happens. So then he says, for I consider, after talking about we have the spirit of sonship and adoption, we have the spirit in, uh, inside as 
as we're in the womb of this age awaiting our revelation birth at the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord, and the resurrection of the body. So he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And then it goes on to describe how creation was subjected to frustration, Genesis 3, by divine will, to bring repentance and humility in light of the day of the Lord. But it, it, it groans for the revelation of the sons of God and its liberation from decay. And so all of creation longs for the, the day of the Lord and the, and the release from everything decaying and entropy ruling over creation. <clears throat> and so uh, and then it picks up, um, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So we have the first fruits. So it's a, a ref, it's a it's a, a, a an agrarian reference, a farming reference to you get a first fruit at the beginning of the season in anticipation of the final harvest, right? And so God has given a gift, a first fruits of the Holy Spirit within us, and then the final harvest is the redemption of our body when we receive the salvation of our souls. When our souls no longer have to war with our members with a body of death, and our souls receive a body of life that coincides with, uh, with our members. So, so this is how they understood the Holy Spirit in light of how we were created, how we're going to be resurrected. And in this age, the activity of the Holy Spirit is understood as a first fruits of what is to come in the age to come. And so you have the beginning and the end, and then you understand the gift of the Holy Spirit in this age. As in Hebrews 6, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. So here, again, you get the first fruits idea, the powers of the coming age, in which the same, the same activity of God in the coming age, we, God has given us as a gift now. You could also think of it as the power of the original age, as it was in the beginning, for it's a restoration of all things in the end. So as the Holy Spirit worked in the beginning, so He'll renew things in the end, and He's given us the, the, a gift of the Holy Spirit now to strengthen our faith. To strengthen our faith in our design. To strengthen our faith in our destiny. Right? So that we can walk according to... Listen, brother. Romans 13. Live as in the daytime. Put off the deeds of the flesh. Of a body of death. And put on Christ Jesus. Right? You... you you weren't designed in the beginning as a thief. Your, your God created you to, to supply your need. You're not going to have need to steal or frantic, right? What, what causes theft? It's the anxiety of provision. 
That's what drives people. And so you're going to be provided for in the age to come. Don't worry about this life, right? Seek first the kingdom in the age to come, and this age will be provided for you. Live as in the daytime. You are created for perversion and, 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 and immorality in the beginning. They were created male and female. There wasn't divorce. You're not going to have perversion and immorality in the age to come. Live according to your design and your destiny, right? And it informs us, and God gives us the Holy Spirit and works miracles in our midst to, to, to convict, to, to instruct, to direct our lives in truth and righteousness. So, uh, flip over to page 2. <clears throat> this is uh, made evident in a number of places, particularly 2 Corinthians 1. Ephesians 1 here and 2 Corinthians 5 where the Holy Spirit is uh, described as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come in the future. So if you go to buy something and, and you set up an arrangement and, well, how do I know that I'm going to get paid? The, the man asks you for you go to buy a car and how do I know that I'm going to get paid down the line, right? Well, I'm going to give you a deposit a guarantee that I'm serious about it and I'm going to I'm going to finish payment of it. And say okay, so Second Corinthians five, in context to the end of Second Corinthians four, right? We all know the end of Second Corinthians four, we're crushed, beat down, not perplexed, always being given over in our body to death and handed over to death for Jesus' sake. <clears throat> but we don't lose heart because inwardly we're being renewed. Though outwardly, we're wasting away. Because we set our eyes not on what's temporary in this age, but on what's eternal. Because what is seen this age is temporary. What's unseen in the future is eternal. Right? And then it picks up here. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, right? If, if our outer man is wasting away and is destroyed... We have a building from God. We have a body from God. A treasure stored up in heaven. <clears throat> An eternal house not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, in which when God rends the heavens at the day of the Lord and descends, He will give us our eternal inheritance and the reward for our diligence before Him and seeking Him in our acts of righteousness. He says, uh, we're longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened, but we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life so that a body of death infused with the Holy Spirit will be swallowed up into a, into a body of life. A friend of mine, he had a dream in which he was looking at a brother who's naturally, he, he's, he's a man gifted in joy. And, and, he's, and in his dream, he's looking at him, and it's the moment of the resurrection. It's the 1 Corinthians 15 and the twinkling of an eye, the transformation. Those caught up and transformed, the, the, the dead come first, and those living caught up and transformed. And, and so he's in that moment, he's looking at his friend, and he's seeing him being transformed in an instant to glory. 
And, and he's out from the innermost man of him is exploding joy and gladness and happiness just, just exploding. He's, he just starts screaming in joy. And at the exact same instant, he hears in the background the worst wailing and horror that he's ever heard in his life. In a moment, at the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the wicked, when both receive their due reward. And so, so this is what we're longing for, that, that mortality, what is perishable, may be swallowed up by what is imperishable. And we need this. We need, we need the Holy Spirit to give us images and visions of where we're going and what our destiny is to stamp us and seal us for all along the journey. And we have to struggle in various ways with the body of death and all its you know, various manifestations. So that we don't give up and lose heart as our outer man wastes away, right? So uh, he says, now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Okay, so it's a, it's under, the Holy Spirit is understood as a guarantee of the future, as an assurance of salvation, right? This is why we can't go without the Holy Spirit. This is why we can't just wander around in the wilderness eating snakes and scorpions and, and cactus and prickly, right? We have to be diligent to get up daily and receive from God the manna, our daily bread, and receive from the Holy Spirit that we might not be led into temptation because we're all the same. We all got the same nature of being human going on, right? So we all need to receive from God to... None of us can by our own strength just whoop ourselves up into zeal and belief. You, you understand? Hopefully we, we understand. So he's, uh, the Holy Spirit is understood as the powers of the coming age, as the fruit, first fruits of the final harvest, as the deposit guaranteeing what's to come. And all of this is understood in light of the return of Jesus, in light of the resurrection of the body. But there's more of a purpose than that of just the assurance of salvation. And uh, so the Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. He's the counselor. Okay, He does more than just kind of, you know, uh, kind of uh, uh, tickle and stir and... and, uh, and Make us happy, which those things are awesome, you know. I mean, you, you 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 have kids, and if it's all just like this, you know, and there's never any tickling, wrestling on the ground type of situation, the culture of life in the house begins to degenerate, right? But it's more than that. the 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 gift of the Spirit is to instruct and to lead into truth, and to convict of unrighteousness, and to to keep on a narrow path towards the eternal inheritance. So John 14, Jesus is saying to His disciples at the Last Supper, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I said to you. And so we have a, a helper. 
Like it says in uh, 1 John 2, you don't need a teacher because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach you. You have the Holy Spirit, and, and this is desperately needed in the body of Christ because you, you have this chronic problem of, of the shepherds being the presenting themselves as the sole arbitrators of truth. I'm the one with all the answers, you know. And that's just not the case. We're all broken and falling, dealing with all of our issues and all this going on and, and, and spurring one another on in love and good deeds all the more as we see the day approaching. And so we need an entrusting to the Holy Spirit from the youngest to the oldest. We need a to one another. We are fellow servants of Christ Jesus and we need to entrust one another to the Holy Spirit that if we give in three weeks time, we can take a believer, set them solidly in the gospel and entrust them to the Holy Spirit that they will follow God and that the Holy Spirit will lead them. If you have kids, you understand how this works where it's always a game that you're, you're entrusting them with responsibility. You're entrusting them to walk in the truth. And, and if you're constantly on them like this, all the time micromanaging everything, the, the whole culture begins to break down in, in, in within the house. So God's the same way with us, and we have to be the same way with one another where we have to entrust one another and say, you know what? I, I believe the Holy Spirit can lead you. People come to you with questions. You give them the Scriptures, and you entrust them to the Holy Spirit. You say, Go search it out. Look at the Scriptures and go search it out under the Holy Spirit. And then they leave and you say, Holy Spirit, enlighten their eyes. Holy Spirit, lead them. <clears throat> so, uh, so not only does He lead us into truth, John 15, <clears throat> he, he leads us to testify to the truth. In Christ Jesus, when the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father... He will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. And so, uh, so the Holy Spirit not only is a deposit and a guarantee and a first fruit, but He's also a counselor and a teacher to help us to, to, to testify and lead us to the truth concerning Christ Jesus. So this uh, is where things begin to get hairy because usually it's fairly simple and straightforward that <clears throat> creation, new creation, and the Holy Spirit, the resurrection of the body, deposit, assurance, awesome, awesome. Okay, so then the Holy Spirit leads us into truth and then it starts to break down about what is truth and how does God reveal Himself? Who is... Jesus, and what does it mean that God handed over His Son to be crushed? And what does it mean that God set His Son on a pole to be crucified? What does this mean? Right? And so now we start to get into a little bit of the hairy about what is being led into the truth? What, what, what does it mean? What does the cross mean? So the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to understand what happened at the first coming in relation to the second coming. Acts 1, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about, 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So then, of course, the disciples ask, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is is the day of the Lord going to happen? The kingdom going to come? And he says, yes, but it's not for you to know the day or the hour. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So then we ask, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to be a witness of Jesus? And you get one spot in Acts 10 where there's a direct reference where Peter is rehearsing the life of John the Baptist to Cornelius the Gentile. And you get a direct reference to this event in Acts 1. You get it in Acts 10. And Peter says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about Him that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. So the message is a very simple, straightforward message concerning the first coming and the second coming. Concerning the this age and the age to come. Concerning the forgiveness of sins, the repentance and forgiveness of sins being preached to all the nations in light of the day of the Lord and eternal judgment. Okay, so a very simple, straightforward timeline concerning the first and the second comings. And, and obviously this isn't all that we testify about, but this is the, the main two things that are the, 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 the divine thumbprint of the gospel. This is, this is what identifies it as the gospel and the testimony of the church. What happened at the first coming and what happened at the, what's going to happen at the second coming? <clears throat> so he says in Mark 16, along the same lines, he said to them after the resurrection, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, so understood in baptism as a repentance of sins and, and, a, uh, and a cleansing of sin, will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. So you have a clear reference to the resurrection of the righteous to eternal life and the resurrection of the wicked to eternal damnation. He says, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them, and they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So the design of the Holy Spirit is not only the assurance of salvation, but the empowerment of the witness of the gospel. And like we talked about, the gospel involves the first coming and the second coming. Now here we get a little more difficult, because the second coming was commonly understood. The day of the Lord, the judgment of the living and the dead, the resurrection of the body, these are all easily understood within first century Judaism. The mystery and the difficulty is the understanding of the first coming and the testimony of the Spirit to the first coming. 
And what was the first coming about? And what was the cross about? So it was the confirmation of divine grace. Page 3, Acts 14 at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of His grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. He confirmed the message of the grace of God by enabling them to do signs and wonders. And this is kind of the strange part about the gift of the Holy Spirit and faith for miracles is that it's, it's always a confirmation of the message. And so we want to use the gift of the Holy Spirit to confirm the right message, to confirm the message of the Scriptures. And this is where many people get extremely confused and hurt in the body of Christ when there's a false message of the kingdom now, of prosperity now, of gaining a life now, rather than the message of God and laying your life down now, losing your life in this age, taking up your cross being crucified with Christ and being found in Him, that we might receive life in the age to come and receive eternal life. And the gift of the Holy Spirit on that. That's what you need the Holy Spirit for. You don't need the Holy Spirit to go make money and take over the world. Any frat guy believes that. That's just a gospel of the flesh. Anybody believes that. You don't need the Holy Spirit. Just go in, preach, rile people up. You don't need the Holy Spirit for that. You need the Holy Spirit to lay down your life, to give up your dreams, to give up what you want in this life, to give up comfort. That's what we need the Holy Spirit about, right? That's what we need, a a divine testimony of our life to make us go, when when it goes on, we get all the messages and everything in the world, everything's driving at us to live for now, don't worry about it, just sleep in, don't worry about it, just go after this and all this... And you get all everybody telling you, you know, that's when you need the Holy Spirit and a testimony that He did three years ago. And I had the shaking event. And I can get up and go, okay, no, I don't feel it now. I can deny the flesh. I say yes to God. So like I had a friend and, and so this is, I, I, I normally just, you know, teach along and, and it's, you're just fairly dry and it's like whatever. And, and I, I don't, I don't try to, to work things up because it's happened so many times over the years that people just kind of stare at me. And they're like, all right. And, and sometimes they'll come up and they're like, I, I just don't feel the witness of the Spirit on that brother. You know, I've heard that a number of times and I'm like, that's cool. And I don't, what, okay. And then a week later, a month later, a year later, they come back with some experience so one time a, a guy that uh, I was discipling he had a dream of, he had a dream I was in he called and I was like yeah man I, you know we can meet and and uh, we'll just do kind of a bible study together we'll read the scriptures and so we were we were a couple months in and you know we just met weekly and all of a sudden he calls me up one day and he says John I, I had an experience last night he says in the middle of the night I went from dead asleep and I woke up to this voice that said, Do you preach Christ and Him crucified? Loud, 
like loud external voice from dead asleep to wide awake. He says, I got out of bed and, and I looked around and I thought somebody like it was in the room. He said, I thought somebody was in the room. So I walked over and I got my gun and I walked outside and I trekked around because there was nobody in the house. And I trekked around. He said, as I got around the house, all of a sudden it dawned on me. That was the voice of God. And he was like, he was, you know, he was kind of like shaken by it. And I was like, okay. So then he goes back in the house and, you know, puts his gun away. He's laying on his bed going, what in the world? And he kind of drifts off to sleep. And an hour later, all of a sudden, boom! Do you preach Christ and Him crucified? Like, it's not a nice. It's like loud and it's directed at Him. It's a question, but it's kind of a threat. You know, it's like this. And he's... And all of a sudden he knows, instantly he wakes up and he knows it's the voice of God and it's just the fear and dread of God on his life, right? And so, so the point of that is he, he was shaken by it. And, you know, we met for a while and then the Lord called him off over and, and I don't have a lot of interaction with him anymore. This is a couple of years ago. And, but he had an experience in the Holy Spirit that confirmed the message that we hadn't worked through that much. We hadn't really even worked through the scriptures that much. But, that was something that he'll never get away from. You can't get away from that. What do you do with that? For 20 years down the road, that experience is going to go like this. In all of his teaching and all of his ministry and everything that's going on, that thing's just going to keep coming back in his mind. Do I preach Christ and Him crucified? Does this correspond with the message of the cross? Was, and what I say is, you, you, you see what I'm saying? So this is why we need the gift of the Holy Spirit is the difficulties of the cares of this life and everything that calls us to take up our life and live for this age. Everything in the world tells us to live for this age rather than to lay our life down daily and to give up our will and take up the will of God and to have a holy ambition for life. Not a selfish ambition. There's a 10,000 selfish ambitions in life. We need a holy ambition. A holy fear of God that the severity of God in the day of the Lord instills in us. And we need that hard voice of the Father that corrects and sets us on a straight path. Because then we can hear the, the kindness of God in context to the severity and the merciful voice of, of, of our Father that leads us tenderly in light of that. We need both of them to stay on a narrow path. Because it is true. It's Hard to be saved. The, the, the path to destruction is wide. The path to eternal life is narrow. And few find it. It's just the reality of how it is. So we have to understand why few find it. Because the message of the gospel is that this age is an age of the cross. The age to come is the age of life and the resurrection. This age is an age of laying down our life for God and serving Him. The age to come is an age of life and inheritance and the service of the angels ascending and descending on behalf of the saints and the saints judging the angels. This age is about one thing. The age to come is about a different thing. And this is where the rubber meets the road on why the two ages need to remain this age versus the age to come. Once you start overlapping them and mixing them all up and confusing them, all of a sudden, 
the message of the cross and the laying down and dying with Him, being found with Him, so that it, to, to attain the resurrection, all that begins to kind of float into the background as you hear the wah, 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 wah. And sermon after sermon and message after message and book after book after book and wah, 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 and libraries and volumes and shelves of teaching. And it just goes on and on and on. Live for this life. Live for now. Take up your life now. Your best life now. On and on. Guys, and I'm not like, I don't want to be negative, but we have to come to terms with where we're at in the most wealthy nation in history, the most affluent, the most self-indulgent, the most immoral and perverse. I mean, we could argue over whether it is, but I mean, it seems fairly obvious, you know. It's I'm not, we don't want to, whatever. Okay, so let's, uh, okay. Ephesians 1, so the confirmation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's in relation to the testimony of the cross, page 3. In love, He predestined us for adoption. Predestined is in light of the receiving of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And then we are destined to be conformed to His image, Romans 8. So uh, we're predestined by the gift of the Holy Spirit under the sovereignty of God through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. So we know the redemption by His blood is unto the mystery of the fullness of the time and, and bringing the heavens and the earth under the headship of His Son, right? In verse 12, which is, that's dot, dot, dotted, right? So we know it's in light of the day of the Lord. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus in anticipation of our, our future uh, uh, <clears throat> resurrection. He says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, right? Because this is the power not ashamed of the cross because is the gospel for salvation for everyone who believes because in it is the righteousness of God on our behalf that we might receive the salvation by faith in the cross. He says, so the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So again, the sealing of the Holy Spirit is to confirm the message of our redemption by His blood. Not by what we've done. Right? A friend of mine works through Ephesians, Ephesians 1 and 2 and he lays out, you know, the glory of the revelation that we'd have eyes to see, the spirit of revelation, the hope of our calling, the power that's reserved for us. Just like God raised Jesus from the dead, See him at right hand. He's going to raise us from the dead too. But you were dead in your transgressions. You were by nature an object of wrath. You were walking according to the spirit of this age. You did nothing in the equation to receive mercy and salvation. What you did was anger the wrath of God. That was your destiny. That's what you did. And then God came along and He made you alive with Him. And He seated you with Him. 
by mercy and grace that in the coming ages, the testimony over every single human being might be the riches of His immeasurable mercy and grace towards every human being. That's why it's worked out like it has like this. Because God is building a testimony throughout the ages concerning Himself and the sin of man that in the coming ages, the only testimony might be concerning every human being is the mercy of His grace towards us. That's how He's orchestrating history. Right? That's how Romans 11 goes. That He hardened the Jews to disobedience so that He might have mercy on the Gentiles. Just like before that, He hardened the Gentiles so that He could have mercy on the Jews. Why? Because He's consigned everybody to disobedience that He might have mercy on everyone. Right? This is how He's working. And so we have to have a, a, a higher prophetic view of redemptive history of why things are unfolding the way they are so that God can receive a testimony concerning Himself about His nature and character and His mercy towards His enemies and how He is. So Acts 4, Now look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed in that place in which they were gathered together was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Right? Because there is an issue at hand of needing boldness and strength to continue to speak the Word of God concerning the cross. To continue to speak the Word of God because there's persecution concerning the message of the cross at that time. And the message of the cross was, we don't need forgiveness. We have a righteousness of our own. We're obedient to the law, right? We're like the Pharisee that looks at the the tax collector and says, thank you God that I'm not like this man. I, I fast, I pray, I give a tenth of this. And this guy sits over here crying out to God for mercy. Right, And so you have, at the first coming, you have a culture of first century Judaism that in Romans 11, Paul describes in a broad, general way as arrogant. This is the perversion that was rampant in first century. And it's, it's, it's common to human beings, Jew and Gentile alike, from, from the garden till now. So it's not unique to first century Judaism. But this is what they're running up against. And this is what the gospel was running up against in first century Judaism. And this was what the offense of the cross was and persecution for the cross. That's what it was about. Was the nature of self-righteousness that caused people not to fear and cry out and to walk out their salvation with fear and trembling. So again, as you see in the diagram, the, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is the gift of God for the witness of Himself. The witness of redemptive history, the first and the second coming, but particularly the first coming in the nature of the cross. So, in the New Testament, this is what walking according to the the Spirit is about. And I know uh, I get into this, and this is where people start to freak out on me, and I don't want you to freak out on me. I just want you to, to just hold on, Test if these things be right. Compare them with the Scriptures. And allow God to confirm it. Because I'm not going to... I mean, I'm going to push for it. But I'm not going to drive it down your throat. But I'm going to be zealous about it. So, 
There you go. <laughs> so Galatians 2, you have two main groups. You have those who walk by faith according to the Spirit, who put faith in the cross for salvation on that day, for the acquittal of sins. Then you have those who walk by the flesh and put confidence in the flesh that they would receive a well-done good and faithful servant by their own deeds. So these are the two camps that Paul is primarily fighting against, and his primary battle in the early church was with the circumcision group, who called themselves believers, but they set aside the grace of God. They said they believed in Jesus, but they didn't walk at a heart level in such a way that their faith was in the cross and what God had done on their behalf for salvation. They didn't believe in the, in the uh, crucifixion of the Messiah as a sacrifice. They had set that thing aside. <clears throat> and so, uh, Galatians 2, Paul is in a confrontation with Peter in Antioch over the issue of how they'll be, how we'll be saved. And so Paul is confronting Peter and he's saying, look, we're both Jews. We understand that we're not justified by our own works of righteousness and justified by works of the law. We're justified by the grace of God as a free gift. And he goes, he goes into issues of, of, uh, whatever. So then he gets to the climax of the confrontation. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So he's saying, look, I live the life I live between now and the resurrection, I live by faith in the Son of God who, is, who gave Himself for me. And I identify myself and I set myself and who I am with Him by faith in the cross, that that is the means by which I'm righteous before God. And the life between now and then, that's how I live. And he's telling Peter, you are not crucified with Christ. You have not died with Him. You do not know Him. Because you, the life you live between now and His return, the resurrection, you live by faith in your own works. And by faith in your own righteousness. And you've set aside the grace of God. Because to you, Christ died for nothing. Right? To you, God came... In Jesus, made the Romans mad, they killed him. God raised him from the dead, seated him in his right hand, and he'll return and you'll enter into the glory, into the king and maternal life because you're awesome. That's how it goes for you. You don't have any substitutional atonement. You don't have any righteousness, not of your own going on. So then he shifts to the Galatians and he says, the same spirit that bewitched Peter and led astray Barnabas, that same spirit, and it's a spirit. It comes over people. It comes over groups. I've seen it happen. It comes over them. And all of a sudden, there's a shift in corporate consciousness about how they relate to God. And it's this subtle shift, and it's all very in the way people, it begins to be reflected in the way they respond to each other, the way they look at each other, the way they interact, the things they say to each other. And it becomes a culture of performance like this, right? Instead of a culture of mercy in the cross and a culture of the cross. And so he says, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Before your very eyes. 
This is what happened. The Messiah came and he was crucified. And this is the message we brought to you. This was the gospel we brought to you. And then another group of people come along with a different gospel because they saw an angel and whatever and the angel said that you have to obey the law of Moses and be circumcised so that you can be saved. That's what the, God, that's what the angel said. And you were bewitched and you believed it. And so he says, before your very eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as, as crucified. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law on the basis of your works or by believing what you heard about Christ crucified? How did you receive the Spirit? If indeed you're in Christ. If indeed. Right? Because here we have the core of the issue of are you converted? Right? Because the real conversion story always goes something like this. I was this, and God brought me to this. That's always how the real conversion story goes. I was doing along like this, and then God brought me to my knees, and I cried out for mercy. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And all of a sudden, I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and I had peace with God, and I was reconciled. That's if you know you're in Christ. That's the core of it. That's the core of the gift of the Holy Spirit. If indeed you're in Christ. I hear a lot of other testimonies, and they don't make me cry. They make me kind of go, I'm not sure we know the same Jesus. Um, and so, <clears throat> this is his point. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal? What's the goal? Eternal life and the resurrection of the day of the Lord. Are you trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Right? This is part of the strange group of the strange dynamic of you'll see groups that live lives of licentiousness that are really perverted and yet God works miracles in their midst. What is going on? Because they believe that the miracles are a result of faith, not of works. They're a result of believing God and what He's done and God gives the, the grace and gift of the Holy Spirit. So again, as we approach God, we approach Him on the broad spectrum of redemptive history in relation to salvation on the basis of grace and mercy. And we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as a first fruits. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as a teacher and a counselor. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower a witness as a gift by what we've heard and by faith. <clears throat> so, uh, likewise, like Galatians, Philippians is another one of those uh, very contentious books and very intense. But it's the same dynamic of how we relate to the Spirit of God. So, the same way that Paul's hammering against 
the circumcision group in Galatians 2, so also in Philippians 3. Paul says, look out for those dogs, look out for those evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the real circumcision. Right? So it's the kind of the same as Ephesians 2. Uh, for to you Gentiles who who how's I've drawn a blank. How's he saying Ephesians 2? Just so we know we're talking about the same bit here. He says, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. So we're talking about the same group, those who call themselves the circumcision. He says, we're the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We're the ones who walk by the Spirit because the Holy Spirit shows us the path to eternal life that on that day, this is how we will not bear our sin, that another will bear our sin. This is how we'll receive eternal life and do and and reward for our diligence in Him. This is how we'll enter into eternal life. And not have all of our good, all of our righteousness and all of our diligence be disqualified because we bear our sin. This is how we are found in Him, right? He says, we walk by the Holy Spirit. We don't walk by the flesh. We don't put confidence in the flesh. And these are the two ways of walking out life before the resurrection and the return of Jesus. There's two paths. There's ways of walking according to yourself in the flesh. And there's ways of walking according to the Holy Spirit and Christ crucified and what God has done on our behalf. These are the two paths. And so he's going to unpack this in Philippians 3. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. I was righteous before God, according to men. But, as I put confidence in the flesh, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So he's saying before, I had zeal, but it was without knowledge because I sought a righteousness of my own and I didn't submit to the righteousness of God. I had zeal, but I didn't know God. And so his point is, he says, I want to know Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I suffer the loss of all things. What was all things? Confidence in the flesh. And all that He had just uh, uh, listed. I count them as rubbish or excrement, dung, in order that I may gain Christ. Okay, so you, you got to like... You gotta put yourself in the scenario that you have a lot of very high standing men that everybody looks up to. And he says, they put confidence, they're dogs. They call themselves believers, but they're actually dogs. Because they put confidence in the flesh. If anybody has reason to put confidence in the flesh for eternal life and for salvation, it was me. But I consider that stuff dung and excrement. Okay? What if you're on the other side of that? Right? 
You're giving your life to all this. And here's a guy saying, everything you're about is dung. Awesome. <clears throat> Slightly controversial is what it is. Because this was the, this is called sharp dispute. This is what happens in Acts 15. You have a sharp dispute. It's not like, well, oh brother, you know, your opinion, that's good, I want to know. No, brother, that is leading to a lake of fire. You're destroying human beings by that message. That's a sharp dispute. Everything you're saying and putting confidence in is dung. That's a sharp dispute. You see what I'm saying? So if you know, like, you know, if you're familiar with Jewish culture, that's, it's not so foreign, but in a very, uh, politically correct culture and age, that's a little like, dude. <clears throat> so, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that I might be found in Him. Right? And the whole idea of being found is in context to the day of the Lord when God exposes the earth and He lays the earth bare. Isaiah 24. And He exposes the motives of men. And He brings down the haughty and raises up the humble. So this is what He wants to... When, when, when God reveals everything, when He sheds light on all the darkness... I want to be discovered in Him by faith in Christ crucified. I don't want to be discovered in myself. God, I was righteous. I kept the law. I put, I, I, my works of righteousness. I did this. I did that. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee. I, I walked according to righteousness outward. I was clean. I was clean. I was clean. But inwardly, I was full of selfish ambition perversion, and greed, and all these things, right? So I want to be found in Him in that day. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that He just put confidence in the flesh, right? I want to be found in the Spirit, worshiping by the Spirit of God as the Spirit leads me down that path towards eternal life. And that this is the way. Even though it doesn't make sense, I understand, all through the Scriptures, the whole sacrifice thing doesn't make sense, Right? You come to the animal, you've sinned, you're repentant, you put your hand on the animal, you confess over it, oh God have mercy on me, and then you walk away. you got all the same memories, you got all the same stuff going on, and it takes faith to go, God reckons me on behalf of that animal. You have to rehearse it. You have to say, God cleansed me, God reckons me on behalf of the animal. God cleansed me, God reckoned me on behalf of the animal. Right? There's judgment coming through the land. This is why God ordained the Messiah to die on the Passover. To give the main picture of what redemptive history is about. There's judgment coming through the land. You put blood on the door and you get in the house. And your firstborn won't die. Um, strange arrangement. Okay. Kill the animal. Put the blood over the door. Get in the house. Sit in the house. Sit in the house. Sit in the house. Is it going to happen? Is it going to happen? Man, I got, I got stuff going on. I gotta do this, I gotta deal with this, all this stuff's going through your mind, the rest of life, the cares of life going on. Right? It takes faith to stay in the house and believe that this is the arrangement. This is actually the arrangement. I, I'm the same as everybody else in here. 
that when we stand before Him on that day, how it will turn out is based on our faith and what is going on inside and how we present ourselves and how we live ourselves before God in relation to the cross. That's how it's going to turn out. That's the arrangement. Right? I don't believe it just like you don't believe it. What do we need? We need the gift of the Holy Spirit to stamp it on us so that we believe it. So when we get up, We've screwed up. We've messed up. Whatever. We've transgressed. What do we do? We don't go back to human effort. We cry out, Oh God, have mercy on me. Our brother calls us. He's majorly stumbled. What do we do? We don't put confidence in the flesh. We say, Brother, cry out to God. We grab Him. We start praying. Oh God, have mercy on us. God, help us. Lead us not into temptation, God. Lead us down that path towards eternal life. God, help us with Your Spirit. Strengthen us, God. Help us, God. Help us. And we cry out to Him for mercy, right? This is the path. We cry out for grace and strengthening the Holy Spirit to wash us and cleanse us. Set us back on. We set that thing before us. We put it back before us. Christ crucified. This is why I'm righteous in Him. It's not according to me. It's according to what He's done. And we press on this day by day by day. Right? Daily we receive the Holy Spirit. This is how we walk that road. If you don't have the Holy Spirit day by day, you will not walk that road. You won't do it. You'll always devolve into yourself. You'll always devolve into that black hole of darkness that is yourself. We all know the black hole of darkness that is ourself. Right? We all know it. If you don't know it, you're in delusion. That's, that is the way it is. I'm serious. I'm serious about that. We have to know what's going on here. So that we relate to God and cast ourselves fully on God. So we're going to see how Paul does this. He says, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from the sacrifice and the animal depends on faith and how you relate to the animal. The Pharisee and the tax collector both bring the, the offering to the temple. Both of them. That's why they're at the temple. The Pharisees bring in the animal. The tax collectors bring in the animal. The righteousness that God reckons this one justified and acquitted of his sin, and this one continues to bear his sin unto wrath. How does that happen? It depends on the faith of the man. And he says to himself, well, this one says to himself. You see what I'm saying? So Paul's saying this is how redemptive history is going to play out. He says it depends on faith that I may know Him, that I may know the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That this is the race of how we attain to the resurrection of the dead. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Obviously, he's not talking about the resurrection, right? That's not what he's talking about, obtaining this. None of us have obtained to the resurrection. We can all agree to that, right? You're all going to die. It's not that you don't have enough faith. It's that it's appointed once for a man to die and then face judgment. That's just the reality of how it is, except for one man. And so we're all in the same boat. The, what he's attaining is the perfection of faith. Because what was he perfect in before? He was perfect in confidence in the flesh. He was blameless, perfect. Now he's seeking to be perfect in something else. He's seeking to obtain something else. 
He obtained something according to the flesh. And he counted that as dung. Now he's seeking to obtain by faith a righteousness that comes from God. Right? Because again, it's not easy to account yourself with a sacrifice. It's not just, oh, you know, I'll sin. God will forgive me. No, no, that's assuming the sacrifice. There's no, there's no sacrifice for intentional sin. Never. Never. There's only a sacrifice for unintentional sin. If there's intentional sin, it demands stoning and purging. If there's intentional sin, there's no nothing but expectation of fury and divine wrath stored up for those. The adversaries of God, Hebrews 10. Because there's no sacrifice left. If those who went on sinning died at the hands of two or three witnesses in the law of Moses, how much worse the punishment for those who continue on in their sin in Christ Jesus? There's no place for intentional sin. There's only a place for repentance continually. Walking out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? So it's not an easy thing to put our faith in something else for righteousness. It's a, it's a demanding task. It's a race to obtain, right? So this becomes clear as we move forward. He says, not that I'm perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. I was going along and all of a sudden a bright light happened. And He communicated to me the message of the cross. And He made me His own. And He taught me who I was and how I was in relation to God. And he says, brother, I do not consider that I've made it my own, the faith and a righteousness, not my own, but I press on. Oh, suit, sorry. I do not consider I made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. What, what li- lies behind? Forgetting what lies behind is confidence in the flesh and pressing for what lies ahead and what lies ahead. Being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. That's what's behind, walking according to the flesh, and that's what's ahead, walking according to the Spirit. I strain forward towards what lies ahead. I press toward the goal of the prize of the high call, the upward call on God and Christ Jesus. So again, this is what we want to give ourselves to, is a walking of life according to the Spirit, according to the path of life, according to that narrow path in which will be found in him according and will be found in him according to Christ crucified and not be found according to the flesh. And so again, I, we've run out of time. I don't want to keep I know we got kids, so I want to wrap this up. Romans 8. This is this is what Romans 8 is about. In light of Romans 7 and the body of death and the warring in the members, how do I relate to it? I don't put confidence in the flesh. I put confidence in the one who became sin for me as a sin offering. That's what I put confidence in, that I have no condemnation. You walk up to the animal, you put confidence in that thing. That's how you get rid of your condemnation, is you believe God, that God reckons you in the animal. That's how you deal with condemnation. You don't overcome by the flesh. You overcome by the Holy Spirit. And so the the, the ones who set their minds on earthly things is the circumcision group. We are those who set our minds on heavenly things. So this is the apostolic end, the gift of the Holy Spirit to preach the cross to see as many saved as possible on that day. Amen? So just I, I want to bring this to conclusion. And I know that uh, um, maybe if somebody just wants to, to 
just kind of close this with a little bit of worship. I, I want to, uh, many of us are, are established in the message of the cross, but uh, there are those in the room that I know, because just this is how it, it, it happens, that you have an intense uh, uh, piercing, a, a, a highlighted nature to what you know when you're in a room and, and the dude who's talking is talking to you, right? That's the Holy Spirit. So if the message has been talking to you, I just want you to, to uh, uh, raise your hand, and I want those who have faith, according to that, for an impartation and a sealing, to just gather around, okay? And let's just pray for an impartation of it. Pray for the gift of the Holy Spirit on it. And pray that God would give us that print you preach Christ and Him crucified. That He would give us that individual thing that happens. Whether in a dream, whether in a, an encounter, Acts 2, visions, dreams, signs on the earth, angelic visitations, gifts of the Holy Spirit in various ways and tongues, these kinds of things. That as God begins to touch people in various ways, we can we can give interpretation to it in the right way. We can give interpretation to the activity of the Holy Spirit that this means let's cry out to God and cast ourselves on the cross. Today, tomorrow, and the next day, we cry out to God, we give ourselves, and we have a resolve within ourselves for a perseverance in the faith and in the gospel unto the day of Christ Jesus.